Good morning, people of Earth. You know who this is. This is that guy in your ear. The one who brings you all this crazy stuff. Yep, it's me. Hacker Mike, with a new edition of The Walk in the morning. First day, I would say, a fall for me that I have to close my jacket. Grandma knitted me a little beanie. My mom. Call her grandma because she's our son's grandma. We knitted her, she knitted me a beanie in one day and it's neon yellow so I can be seen. So I'm quite happy with that. So I have some progress updates on the Haskell. Well, it turns out that if you have 40,000 statements in your Haskell program, that the compiler goes on strike. But if I split up those same exact statements into chunks of 2,000, then it's okay. So it looks like I found a compiler bug. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, so I've got that data split up and I created a new header file containing all the things that are needed to evaluate those statements. And if you remember the statements that I'm compiling are just statements of facts that are extracted from another program, from another compiler. Boy, these stars today, they are crazy. I think I might even see the Milky Way faintly. Yeah, there's a ton of stars out tonight. Now, someone was saying that the smoke we saw yesterday was from California. Is that even possible? Out here in New Jersey? So <clears throat> today we're going to uh, talk a little bit about podcasting 2.0. I finally got through all the episodes and I'm just going to mix in some elements into this show and talk about some things while they're fresh in my mind. Um, well, first of all, He's talking about Linode and spinning up all these instances, and that's cool. So, let's just start with this. They have uh, three, four gigabytes of podcasts in the index. 
okay. And uh, 30 gigabytes of episode data. Now putting all that into a Git repository would be quite annoying. But what are we exactly doing here? Like, do I need, do I want, you know, a thousand podcasts on, with sermons in them? Like, what are my interests? Right? So, let's just say, to begin with, I want my index. I want my, um, my list of podcasts. Not just any list of podcasts. In the, in the end... Curating the list is basically creating that. They don't want to have people that can just add randomly feeds. Another one point, Adam was saying, well, what if someone clones your feed and inserts ads? Well, I just wanted to remind Adam that if he publishes his content and to create a Creative Commons share alike, that that's perfectly legal to do. To have someone clone your feed and insert ads into your podcast. And going non-commercial is not really great either. So That's really uh, something. Um, so, if I were to just want to find all the tech episodes or segments that are relevant to me, Or the ones that are new. See, we get into a problem. So we might have podcasts I don't know about. We might have podcasts that are dead. So, I guess you do have to have a certain amount of scanning to be done to even know what you're looking for. And let's say we have to look at episodes for keywords. And the other thing is that I have high-speed internet. I don't need to rent a server for this. You know, as long as they publish their index to archive.org or whatever data they have, we can start with that.
Yeah, I'm thinking about a lot of stuff right now. But, uh, yeah. Indexing all these podcasts. It's a tough job. And the other question is, like... You know, it's like a chicken and the egg type problem. I think that is the Milky Way. Or a cloud. Could be a contrail. It's a chicken and the egg problem, really. And they never mentioned G Potter, whatever happened to G Potter. So, yep, I don't really have the solution at this point, but some ideas are just basically get a copy of the copy of the index, start trying to understand some feeds to follow I guess you really do need some kind of central index to know where to find them I mean literally I use Twitter and if they say just like add this index to Mastodon I mean that should be good enough for people to search I wonder I wonder who's backing up the mastodon. All right. Well, enough about podcast index. Just some ideas. Now we're going to actually try and finish up Wolfie, Wolframmy. And um Last I was listening to, like, he was talking about how many million Wolfram operations, and the guy, knows no shame to be theoretically thinking, like, how do I define the universe and how many Wolfram computational units I need? I mean, that's pretty uh, over the top, I'd say. So I'm going to listen to that see if I can find some nuggets of truth there Um, and uh, yeah we're gonna finish up this uh, try and finish up this finish up this monster episode and get through it we've already had two hours of this podcast on it now I just want to point out but if I listen to one minute clip and I talk for five minutes on it, you know, that's also gonna drag things out. 
And that's kind of uh, what happens with expanding tree structures in the compiler. It's like you're taking something that's small and you're kind of splitting it up and breaking it up into like a sponge, filling it full of water, so to say. So it does expand. But the advantage of that structure is that you have a generic structure, like a list type tree structure that you can iterate over in general, like a graph. You gotta put it somewhere. Alrighty. Well, I hope to tell you more about the compiler stuff soon because uh, that stuff's at home compiling. It should be done soon. But I felt like I needed to go for this walk. Might not be the longest one. We'll see. Well, let's see what Wolfram has to say. Let's get going with Wolfie. measurements okay so the units i'm using are wolfram language instructions per second okay <laughs> because you got to have some yeah. you know what the what computation are you doing <laughs> there got to be some kind of frame of reference right guide. right yeah. so uh, because it turns out in the end there will be there's sort of an arbitrariness in the language that you use to describe the universe so in those terms i think it's like 10 to the 500 wolfram language operations per second wow. i think is the, um, I think it's of that order. <laughs> you know, based so that's the scale of the computation. What about memory? If, if there's an interesting thing to say about storage and memory. Well, there's a question of how many sort of atoms of space might there be? You know, right. maybe 10 to the 400. We don't know exactly how to estimate these numbers. I mean, this is, this is based on some, some, I would say, somewhat rickety way of estimating things. Uh, you know, when there start to be able to be experiments done, if we're lucky, there will be experiments that can actually nail down some of these numbers. And uh, because of computation reducibility, there's not much hope for very efficient compression, like very uh, efficient representations of this. Question, good question. I mean, there's probably certain things, you know, the fact that we can deduce anything. Okay, the question is, how deep does the reducibility go? Right. Okay. And okay. So now he's going to basically talk about a couple of different things. And I think they're important. One is um, choosing between different sets of updates <clears throat> that you can do. And that things will become eventually consistent in a parallel distributed world because of the causal invariance that you can't act even if you're out of date you can't act on something until it pops up in front of you so We got um, we're gonna have to think about this uh, 
about these choices and these sets a little bit more and it's a little bit hard to to do it just from the description of what he's saying um so i'm not how sh sure how valuable this is going to be even if i listen to it three times um <clears throat> But I'm getting a general idea of what I want to do. And basically I have, I'm loading all my stuff into an array. So I'll have an array of nodes. And these nodes will have um, fields that could point to other nodes. And um, I'm going to create rules for scanning through those fields to look for patterns to replace. One of the patterns is going to be like if you see something, let's say the type of a, we'll just say the name of a node. Names are easy. So if you see the name of a node that references another node, then take that other node and move it as a sub-object of this name. Now types are harder because really we want to have um, a world of types and a world of declarations. And types could be reference multiple times so you don't want to include the type as a sub-object you want to reference it so if we see a type that's referenced I think we would move it into a set of types used let's say and replace it with a ref type reference a reusable reference Okay, so those are just some ideas for rules. Anyway, we're going to uh, think about those things and try them out. We're almost there now with the Haskell. I'm going to be able to load this all stuff into the interpreter of the GHCI and then do experiments on it in memory. So I'm kind of excited about that. Distributed computing. A lot of different intuition about how to think about parallel computation. And that particularly comes from the quantum mechanics side of things, which we didn't talk about much yet. But uh, the question of what, you know, given our current computer hardware, how can we most efficiently simulate things? Yeah. That's actually partly a story of the model itself because the model itself has deep parallelism in it. Yes. The ways that we are simulating it, we're just starting to be able to use that deep parallelism to be able to be more efficient in the way that we simulate things. Yeah. But in fact, the structure of the model itself allows us to think about parallel computation in different ways. And one of my realizations is that, you know, so it's very hard to get in your brain how you deal with parallel computation. And you're always worrying about, you know, if multiple things can happen at different on different computers at different times, oh, what happens if this thing happens before that thing? And we've really got, you know, we have these race conditions where something can race to get to the answer before another thing, and you get all tangled up because you don't know which thing is going to come in first. And usually when you do parallel computing, 
there's a big obsession to lock things down to the point where you've you've had locks and mutexes and God knows what else, where where you've you've um, you've arranged it so that there can only be one sequence of things that can happen. So you don't have to think about all the different kinds of things that can happen. Well, in these models, physics is throwing us into forcing us to think about all these possible things that can happen. But these models, together with what we know from physics, is giving us new ways to think about all possible things happening, about all these different things happening in parallel. And so I'm, I'm they, guessing- They have built-in protection for some of the parallelism. Well, causal invariance is the built-in protection. Causal invariance is what means that even though things happen in different orders, it doesn't matter in the end. As a, as a, as a person who struggled with concurrent programming in, uh, <laughs> in like Java, uh, with all all the basic concepts of uh, concurrent programming, that that if there could be built up a strong mathematical framework for causal invariance, that's so liberating, and well, that that could be not just liberating but really powerful for massively distributed computation. Absolutely, no, I mean you know what's eventual consistency in this, in distributed databases is essentially the causal invariance idea. Yeah. Okay. So that's, but but, but have I, you thought about uh, you know, we're like really large simulations. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm also like, thinking about, look, the fact is, you know, I've spent much of my life as a language designer, right? Yes. So I can't right. possibly not think about, you know, what does this mean for designing languages for parallel computation? In fact, right. another thing that's one of these, you know, I, I'm always embarrassed at how long it's taken me to figure stuff out. But you know, back in the 1980s, I worked on trying to make up languages for parallel computation. I thought about doing graph rewriting. I thought about doing these kinds of things, but I couldn't see how to actually make the connections to actually do something useful. I think now physics is kind of showing us how to make those things useful. And so my guess is that in time, we'll be talking about, you know, we do parallel programming. We'll be talking about programming in a certain reference frame, just as we think about thinking about yeah. physics in a certain reference frame. It's a certain coordination of what's going on. We say, we're going to program in this reference frame. Oh, let's change the reference frame to this reference frame. And then our program will seem different. Okay, so here he's going to go deeper into the multi-way graphs. And he's going to say, you have an edge that says what are the possible replacements that you can make. Like if you do this, it'll go from one state to the next. Basically like a decision tree. Um, yeah, so for my application, I should really look at what are the totally obvious replacements and which other replacements that might be hard uh, which ones could cause conflict and it was just we were saying before like embedding one object to the other is good for some cases but for other cases you have to reference you can't contain or compose All right. As classical physics says, a definite thing happens. Quantum physics says there's this whole set of paths of things that might happen, and we are just observing some overall probability of, of how those paths work. Okay, so when you think about our hypergraphs and all these little updates that are going on, 
there's a very remarkable thing to realize, which is if you say, well, which particular sequence of updates should you do? Say, well, it's not really defined. You can do any of a whole collection of possible sequences of updates. Okay, that set of possible sequences of updates defines yet another kind of graph that we call a multi-way graph. And a multi-way graph just is a graph where at every node, there is a choice of several different possible things that could happen. So for example, you go this way, you go that way. Those are two different edges in the multi-way graph. And you're building up the set of possibilities. So actually, like for example, I just made the one, the multi-way graph for tic-tac-toe. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. T- okay, so now he's saying that for all the branches that happen, there will always be a merge because of cause, causal invariance. And that um, it's basically going to have the same outcome as well. So it doesn't matter what path you take. Um, everything is going to resolve to the same same result in the end. You do them in parallel. You could do them in reverse. Uh, <clears throat> I'm just wondering how he's going to program this. We're going to keep that graph in memory. Like, how many different graphs do we have to uh, calculate here? Um, let's figure that out. Let's see. Well, how to how to describe this? Okay, so first point is there's this multi-way graph of all these different paths of of things that can happen in the world, and the important point is that that uh, these you can have branchings and you can have mergings. Okay, so this property turns out causal invariance is the statement that the number of mergings is equal to the number of branchings. Yeah. So in other words, every time there's a branch, eventually there will also be a merge. In other words, every time there were two possibilities for what might have happened, eventually those will merge. Yeah. Beautiful concept, by the way. But yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So so that so that idea, okay. So then uh so that's that's one thing, and that's closely related to the the uh, sort of objectivity in quantum mechanics, the fact that we believe definite things happen. It's because although there are all these different paths, in some sense, because of causal invariance, they all imply the same thing. That's, I'm, I'm cheating a little bit in saying that, but that's roughly the essence of what's going on. Okay, next, next thing to think about is uh, you have this multi-way graph. It has all these different possible things that are happening. Now we ask this multi-way graph, Okay. So what he's trying to say, what I understand here, is that if we have this multi-way graph over time, and we just take one slice of it um, at a given point in time, we'll have a bunch of possible states that are open, and they'll be have a distance to each other, a relationship to each other. Like in Git, you have different Git versions. And did they branch a long time ago or did they recently branch? And um, that's your branchal space. Okay. So the relationships between all these different branches. But you only care about the ones that are current at any one time. This is getting super deep, guys. 
multi-way graph is sort of evolving with time. Over time, it's branching, it's merging, it's doing all these things, okay? Um, the question we can ask is, if we slice it at a particular time, what do we see? And that slice represents, in a sense, something to do with the state of the universe at a particular time. So in other words, we've got this multi-way graph of all these possibilities, and then we're asking, and, and okay, we take this slice, this slice represents, ascent, okay, each of these different paths corresponds to a different quantum possibility for what's happening. Right. When we take this slice, we're saying, what are the set of quantum possibilities that exist at a particular time? And when you say slice, are these, you slice the graph and then there's a bunch of leaves? A bunch and, of leaves. And those represent the okay. state of things. Right, but, but then, okay, so the important thing that you are quickly picking up on is that um, what, what matters is kind of how these leaves are related to each other. So a good way to tell how leaves are related is just to say, on the step before, did they have a common ancestor? So two leaves might be, they might have just branched from one thing, or they might be far away, you know, way far apart in this graph, where to get to a common ancestor, maybe you have to go all the way back to the beginning of the graph, all the way back to the beginning. So of the there's some kind of measure of distance. Right, guess, and, that, and that, but the, what you get is by making this slice, what you call it branchial space, the space of branches. Um, and in this branchial space, um, you have a graph that represents the relationships between these quantum states in branchial space. You have this notion of distance in branchial space. Okay, so it's connected to uh, quantum entanglement. Yes, yes. It's 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 basically the the distance in branchial space is kind of an entanglement distance. So this that's a very it, nice model. Right, it is very nice. <laughs> it's very beautiful. It's it's. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's so clean. I mean, yeah. it's it's really you know, and it, it it tells one. Okay, so anyway, so then then this this branchial space uh, has this sort of map of the the entanglements between quantum states. Yes. So in physical space, we have so so you know you can say take let's say the causal graph and we can slice that um, at a particular time and then we get this map of how things are laid out in physical space. When we do the same kind of thing, there's a thing called the multiway causal graph, which is the analog of a causal graph for the multiway system. We slice that, we get essentially the relationships between things, not in physical space, but in the space of quantum state. Okay, I have to skip over some of this stuff, but now he's going to basically say that there's a curvature of space due to mass or energy. And then there's a curvature of the branchial probability space. That's the same. So the branchial space is being curved. And I skipped over some of his stuff. You're going to have to listen to this whole podcast of his if you want detail or read more. Um, I'm only selecting pieces that I'm interested in. So, but he's saying that branchial space is also curved. So that mass or energy will curve the branching space of probabilities. <clears throat> and the curvature is the same curvature. And that quantum mecha mechanics and relativity are connected that way. So he seems to be quite happy about that uh, conclusion. Path under goal, which is the thing that is the mathematical essence of quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. Turns out that deflection is the deflection of geodesics in branchial space 
follows the exact same mathematical setup as the deflection of geodesics in physical space, except the deflection of geodesics in physical space is described with Einstein's equations, the deflection of geodesics in branchial space is defined by the Feynman path integral, and they are the same. In other words, they are mathematically the same. So that means that general relativity is a story of essentially motion in physical space. Uh, quantum mechanics is a story of essentially motion in branchial space. And the underlying equation for those two things, although it's presented differently because one's interested in different things in branchial space than in physical space, but the underlying equation is the same. So in other words, it's the this, it's just... You know, these two theories, which are the two sort of pillars of 20th century physics, which have seemed to be off in different directions, are actually facets of the exact same theory. Mm. And this, uh, I mean... That's exciting to see see where that evolves and exciting that that just is there. Right. I mean, to me, you know, look, I, having spent some part of my early life, you know, working in these, in the context of these theories of, of, you know, 20th century physics, it's, they just, they seem so different and the fact that they're really the same is just really amazing. Actually, I mean, you, you mentioned double slit experiment. Okay, so the double slit experiment is a is an interference phenomenon where. All right, so this is probably good a time as any to just chew on the cud for a little bit here, spit some tobacco, and um, think about a narrative. So the narrative is the story, the song. So basically, we always look at what the compiler does as being some details. But then, when the program doesn't work, we try and figure it out. Well, what if what the compiler does with our code is not a detail. What if it's an essential bit of work? And what if, as the user of a piece of code, that you would have the insight not only into what the source code was, but what the compiler thought about that source code? And you had all these decision trees, these multi, um, multi-branch graphs of compilation. Like you were to know what choices it took and why. You know, <clears throat> well, what, we might need a lot of information Maybe we can compress some of it, and maybe this is just debugger information, but I think that um, even if it's internal information to, say, say, a compiler, I mean, okay, let's just say for a second that we have redundant information, and it's just going to blow up memory. Like if you have some exponential function that's applied to everything, let's say the relationship of every function to every other function, 
I don't know. Some super complicated stuff that can't be held in memory, then obviously um, that's going to be a huge amount of impact to share that with a user. But um, what he's saying is that the commutation of the simulation is matching reality. And I'm just thinking that the compilation of source code might match the source code and give you insights as a programmer. I mean, that's what I've always thought. I'm just repeating it here for clarity, maybe to win over some new people. You know, one of our friends and listeners and co-hosts is like, you know, it's funny because my co-hosts don't even listen to the podcast. I mean, nobody listens to the podcast in entirety, I guess. It's just me doing my therapy sessions, putting this stuff out in the world. People be like, oh my God, who's got time to listen to this guy ramble on? Well, I got time to walk. Get some fresh air go for walks. So I got time for that. And I got time to listen to other people. So just imagining that I have a listener is helpful for me. He said, choose your frame of reference. You got to frame things properly. Like how are we framing this? What's our reference frame, right? Who are we talking to? Yeah. So, Lots of stuff to think about. We don't know. I'm hankering to get back on the computer and work out some of these problems myself now. And, um, you know, I'm going to have to put it on pause, this Wolfram stuff for a little bit, and just think about it. And we might pick up where we left off um, later. I have to do some more reading. But um, I think I got some ideas for an algorithm. And uh, we can <clears throat> produce lists of of updates that we can do. I'm just wondering, you know, what is it going to be if we really I think we're going to start with some naive stuff and see what updates we can do that don't cause any that are actually you know relatively harmless and a lot of what we can do in Haskell is going to be like rewriting 
of structures like a map function map reduce like we map over this data we produce a new data set we map over that data we produce a new data set we keep on going over and over and over again and um, eventually we're gonna have to discard you know some of these data sets because it's just gonna blow stuff up But one of the maps we can do is like, okay, we'll take all the variables and turn them into constants, right? Generate some new data types for those, right? And I started on some of that, but I want to do that in memory. So I want it to generate code, right? Then compile that code and then add that in. So that's really what I'm thinking about doing. It's like in the, comp in the interpreter, have some stuff that will generate new code out into a new file, create a new module, then include that module, compile it in, and then that new module will, will, will replace the variables with constants. I mean, do the mappings from a string to a type, right? And we can start by just replacing can start by replacing all the um, all the strings and then um, I mean we haven't thought about this yet but what if we were to get rid of the node IDs and then turn those into individual types or constructors or yeah, types even so I have integer type number one, and that's an actual constructor that takes all the stuff that it needs. And then when it's referenced, type one, we just plug that type right in. and see what happens. I mean, is that possible? So can we get to a point of rewriting on the language level in Haskell with bigger and bigger type signatures? We need to look into that. So, yeah. But eventually I want to get rid of these arrays and just have some kind of map mappable function I mean we're gonna have an array of some kind we're gonna have a list of functions in a module have a list of modules have a list of include files an array of line numbers We're going to have all these great things going. I'm going to create hierarchies and say, okay, well, we got a file name, we got a path, we got a line number. We 
and eventually we're going to hook this all up to the compiler with a Python plugin. Or we generate Haskell plugin directly. I mean, just imagine if we could bootstrap the Haskell plugin itself. Like, compile the compiler plugin interface, use that to generate all the stuff we need from mappings, and then load that into memory in the compiler. Would that be cool? Hey, and I'm thinking, um, I like the uh, notebook interface. Can we do a Haskell notebook, like a GHCI notebook in Jupyter? Well, we can definitely load everything into Python and use Python bindings. So really, in Python, we want to load the compiler. Have the compiler load the Python. Have the Python load the Haskell. Again, eventually um, we can deconstruct the compiler and say the compiler is just a function that we can call. We can also use Docker, and I'm thinking Docker and Kubernetes type stuff for managing multiple processes, for halting processes. I mean, what if you just stop it at the entry point of main keep it in memory loaded or stop it at any point and can clone the whole system and then run off and do something and then return to the original and clone it again like a fork isn't that what the operating system does forks I'm not sure we need docker for that but it does provide you a convenient interface. All right, guys, this is the end of my walk, the end of my talk. Maybe I'll feel motivated today to do something else. I don't know. Oh, look at those bed frames. Those could make good... Metal bed frames could make a good bamboo frame. I'm going to have to go talk to my wife about getting some garbage. Maybe we're going to collect some bamboo today. Alrighty. You guys take care. Bye.